So what does it mean to be good? Well, you listen. You always, 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 always help. Does doing good really matter? Yes, it does. Why does doing good matter? Because God and Jesus, not they're the same person, know that we need to be good. Was Jesus good? Yes. Why was Jesus good? Because he was God. Will doing good get you to heaven? Yes. How? Um, I never thought about it that way. So how do you get to heaven? Um, believing in the Lord. Is that the same as doing good? Yes. So what if you have a teacher that you really love and they do a lot of good things but they don't believe in God? Is that person going to heaven? Mm, I never thought about that. I don't really know. So that's what the podcast is about. It's about asking the question, does being good mean that you're going to heaven? You are listening to Talia's Talk, a podcast on being complete in Christ, hosted by Buzzsprout. Today, we're talking about being good. Are we essentially good? That certainly would align with what we hear around us. After all, evil people talk with low gravelly voices and have friends in low places, right? What is our benchmark for evil, and at what point can we be judged as being good? Here's the kicker, though. Are you good enough to go to heaven? Join us now as Tellius Talk discusses being good. Hello and welcome to Tellius Talk. My name is Wendell Martins. I am your host and I'm so glad you've joined us. Today's topic is called being good. What does it mean to be good? And does being good really matter? If there is anything that we can all agree on, it is that when we read a book, we watch a play, enjoy a TV show, or go to the movies... We want the good guy to win, and evil to be vanquished. Children have a very simple perspective on what it means to be good. When a young child asks, did I do good, they are asking, did I do what was expected of me? When an older child asks the same question, they are asking, do you approve of what I've done? But when an adult asks, did I do good, they very often don't want an honest response. More often than not, they are just telling those listening that they are expecting unchallenged approval. This is where being good fails as a spiritual metric. So are you good? In Mark 10, 17 through 18, we read the story of the rich young ruler. And it says, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus sets the bar pretty high here. Listen again to what he says. No one is good except God alone. Now there are some who suggest that what Jesus says seems to be a denial of his divinity. To me it seems quite clear that Jesus is actually affirming who he is. 
affirming his divinity. Jesus then asked the young man if he has kept the commandments. In effect, Jesus is asking him what he is measuring his goodness against. But I think what we need to do is look at the Greek word that Jesus and the young man are using for good. Three times the same word, agathos, is used. What does this word mean? Well, depending on the context, it could be used to say that someone is of good constitution or nature. Or perhaps something has been useful or salutary. Or an experience has been pleasant, agreeable, joyful, or happy. Or perhaps we are referring to someone who is excellent or distinguished. But in the way it's used in this verse, it describes a person known to be upright and honorable. The young man responds to Jesus by saying, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. And he is telling Jesus that he believes himself to be upright and honorable. For all intents and purposes, he is good. In Matthew 5, verse 45, during his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus uses the word agathos here as well, and good is presented as the opposite of evil. Jesus would have preached this nearly a year before meeting the rich young ruler, so we know that this treatment of the word good wasn't isolated or specific to one event. This treatment of our goodness is still used today as a tool of evangelism. Ray Comfort, an evangelist with Living Water Ministries, begins his street evangelism just by asking someone if they believe they are a good person. Everyone answers yes. So he begins to run through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied, he asks. Yes, they say. Have you ever wanted something someone else had? Yes. Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Yes. At this point, Ray will stop and accuse these people of being liars, thieves, and coveters. Then he reminds them that they have already broken three of the Ten Commandments, so obviously they aren't as good as they claim. Do you see the correlation between Jesus' approach and Ray's? They are asking, are you good? Do you keep the commandments? And if you don't, are you really good? So why are we so eager to claim this mantle of goodness for ourselves? Are we trying to convince others that our actions, our ethics, or our morals are on par with what is expected? Or are we telling people that who we are inside, regardless of our level of corruption, is all that they can expect from us, and it's good enough? Often, when this is our stance, we don't know that we aren't actually good. But either we don't want to change, or we don't believe change is possible. What do we measure our goodness against? A psychologist today may tell you that being good is just a lack of self-centeredness. If that is true, then children are the antithesis of goodness, being the epitome of selfishness. And if this is true, should we then be labeling our children as evil? Douglas Wilson, founder of New St. Andrews College, has labeled children as little bundles of sin. And family psychologist Joan Rosemond has said that children are by nature violent, deceitful, destructive, rebellious, and prone to sociopathic rages if they do not get their way. As we read earlier, the writer of Mark understood good to mean excellent or distinguished, but we know the Romans, the Greeks, and other Gentiles living at the time of Christ would have understood being good, to be less about who you are inside and more about what you do. Do you do good things? Are you honorable? Are you worthy? Roughly 400 years before the birth of Christ, Plato concluded that the form of the good, 
is the ground of all being, an immaterial object that exists more perfectly than anything else, a thing responsible for the goodness and rationality in the world. His student, Aristotle, redefined this thought after Plato's death when he concluded that the highest good is the happy life. Looking at these two thoughts, it's obvious that they differed. Plato seemingly reached to the spiritual, and Aristotle looked to himself for the definition. So where do we go for our definition of good? Is our definition of the term good and how we understand it strictly a Western one? Our cultural standard seems to define good as the opposite of bad or evil. So it contains within it moral and ethical overtones, as well as cultural expectations. The standards of good and bad are defined by people and usually socially constructed. Good and bad are often thought of as synonymous with right and wrong, particularly in the moral definition. The American philosopher Christine M. Korsgaard was quoted on Rutledge.com as saying, Theories of the good have metaphysical implications that the relation between fact and value. Many ancient and medieval philosophers believed in the ultimate identity of the real and the good. Modern philosophers generally reject this identification and have held a range of positions. Realists, for example, hold that the good is part of reality, while certain moral sense theorists hold that when we call something good, we are projecting human interests into reality. The emotivists hold that we use the term good only to signify subjective approval. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, wrote, If God's moral judgment differs from ours so that our black may be his white, we can mean nothing by calling him good. For to say God is good while asserting that his goodness is wholly other than ours is really only to say, God is we know not what. And an utterly unknown quality in God cannot give us moral grounds for loving or obeying him. If he is not, in our sense, good, we shall obey, if at all, only through fear, and should be equally ready to obey omnipotent fiend. The doctrine of total depravity, when the consequence is drawn that since we are totally depraved, our idea of good is worth simply nothing, may thus turn Christianity into a form of devil worship. Is goodness a question of morality? Immanuel Kant called moral values the only values that are good without qualification. But why do we desire to be good? If we are to follow the teachings of Scripture, then it is clear that our nature is evil. And if being evil is our nature, why would we pursue goodness? Romans 7 verse 18 says, For I know that good does not dwell within me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. This idea is not strictly a New Testament one. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And before the flood, in Genesis 6 verse 5, God looks at the people, and we read this, The Lord saw the wickedness of mankind was great on earth, and that every intent to the heart was only evil continually. Have you watched any awards shows lately? How evil is flaunted from the stage to the adoration of the culturally elite, Clearly nothing has changed in the thousands of years. We still desire evil in our hearts. John C. Lennox, the Oxford scholar, mathematician, and lecturer on philosophy and religion, wrote this regarding the Garden of Eden. Here we have the basic ingredients that define human beings as moral beings. God has given them the ability to say yes to him by not eating the prohibited tree and to say no to him by eating it. In this way, the Bible introduces us to the idea that the humans are moral beings with all that this implies. So where do we get our morals? 
Moral goodness is not just good, according to some person's opinion. Some, like the deontologists, believe that the pursuit of something makes that thing good. They define goodness by our reasons to do something. Such a belief relies heavily on a misunderstanding of natural law, supposing there is no deistic or benevolent lawgiver, inferring rather that the natural law is evident within each person. But if morals are self-evident or self-determined, they are unethical. So to base a measure of goodness on subjective reason is to render one's goodness to be moral evil. Morals must come from a moral giver, an impartial source separate from us and perfectly good. Thus the statement made by Jesus to the rich young ruler stands as a proof to his deity. No one is good except God alone. Philosopher William Lane Craig wrote, In a world without a divine lawgiver, there can be no objective right and wrong, only our culturally and personally relative subjective arguments. This means that it is impossible to condemn war, oppression, or crime as evil. Nor can one praise brotherhood, equality, and love as good. For in a universe without God, good and evil do not exist. There is only the bare valueless fact of existence, and there is no one to say that you are right and I am wrong. In our book, Six Good Questions, I wrote, Christianity is God reaching down to man in response to the terrible actions and destruction that is caused in the hands of man. Are we not called to be a light to our nations? It is with a great deal of pride that we sit at home railing against God that he won't intervene against such terrible injustices when we couldn't care less. It is our complacency and lack of action which causes these atrocities in the first place. And in that, we are just as guilty as the ones we point our fingers at. What do we think is evil and how do we portray it? American comedian Jeff Foxworthy said, the choice for us morally is never between good and bad. I think one of Satan's greatest tools is that sin never looks bad. He makes it look good. So the choice we have every morning is between best and good because the devil always makes it look good. When we make a list of what personifies evil, there's always one name that comes to the top of the list. It seems we need a benchmark to point at and say, look at that. See how evil it is? I could never be like that. We have the ability to not only view evil as good, but then justify the evil in our lives by pointing at the benchmark. If we can point away from ourselves to an altruistic evil that draws from external, sacred, or religious sources, then man's inhumanity can still be painted with a veneer of goodness. Rabbi and author Jonathan Sachs wrote, When religion turns men into murderers, God weeps. Too often in the history of religion, men have killed in the name of the God of life waged war in the name of the God of peace, hated in the name of the God of love, and practiced cruelty in the name of the God of compassion. It is easy to identify evil when we can attach it to bigotry, selfishness, or a structural system. This is why the laziness of cancel culture, wokeism, and social justice activists is so persuasive and powerful. If I can portray you as evil through trivial attachment to an egregious external commonality, then I can personalize and demonize the individual regardless of actual guilt. In response to the quote from Jonathan Sachs, I would argue that to blame religion on creating murderers is equal to the lie that man is essentially good. When we strive to push evil away from ourselves, striving to identify evil as something which is not of man, we believe the lie. 
and prove that man is not good. Man is, in fact, inherently evil. The Romanian priest Richard Wormbrand wrote, The cruelty of atheism is hard to believe when man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil. There is no reason to be human. There is no restraint from the depths of evil which is in man. The communist tortures often said there is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. I even heard one torturer say, I thank God in whom I don't believe that I have lived to this hour when I express all the evil in my heart. And he expressed it in unbelievable brutality and torture inflicted on prisoners. Likewise, homicide detective and Christian apologist J. Warner Wallace wrote, Few people will witness as much horrific evil as a homicide detective. I have certainly seen my share, but what do we really mean when we say something is evil? Are we saying we don't like it personally, or are we saying there are some things that are truly, transcendently, objectively evil? Is evil nothing more than a matter of opinion? If so, we could remove all evil by simply changing our minds about what we thought was evil in the first place. If we cannot eliminate evil in this way, we need to think about why and how transcendent notions of evil could exist. While evil might at first appear to be a strong evidence against the existence of an all-powerful, all-loving, divine creator, it may actually be the best possible evidence for the existence of such a being, unless we are prepared to dismiss evil as nothing more than whatever fails to please our private desires or opinions, we're going to need a transcendent standard of good by which to evaluate and identify anything as evil. As crazy as it might sound at first, the existence of true evil, the kind that transcends each of us as individuals and groups, is dependent on the existence of a true, transcendent standard of good. True evil is evidence for God's existence. But what is the question that we really want answered? There is no secret that most secular and religious philosophies view human nature as basically good, if it follows its own course of nature. But Christianity steps off that merry-go-round to posit two things. You cannot do enough good, works-based faith, and you are not good without God. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by the grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Here's what we really want to know. Does being good get you to heaven? Romans 3 verse 12 says very plainly, There is no one who does what is good. And let us consider the story of Cornelius, which we find in Acts chapter 10. He is described in verse 2 as being a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, and made many charitable contributions to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. This seems to describe a very good man. Just look at how he's described. But it does not end there. Verses 3 through 6 tell us that God spoke to Cornelius and gave him a special message. How many of us have received visions and special revelation from God? Certainly these things must have proven that he was a distinctly good person. In verse 22, Cornelius is described like this. A centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of Jews, who was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. But when Peter begins to share the truth of Jesus with Cornelius, explaining the significance of his life, death, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit descends on the whole household, causing them to begin speaking in tongues. Peter responds in a very curious way. He does not celebrate, 
all the goodness of the man or the presence of God, he commands Cornelius' entire household to be baptized. Why is that? It's because being good was not enough for Cornelius to be saved. Romans 3 verse 10 reminds us that there is no righteous person, not even one. And then a few verses later in Romans 3 verse 23, the point is driven home when we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of our sin, we can never be brought into the presence of God. Quite simply, no one can ever be good enough to go to heaven. Once you die, what has been accomplished by all your goodness? Has your being good amounted to only a hollow pursuit of vanity? Can we be good without God? I have been told by pastors that they would rather officiate at funerals rather than weddings, because people at funerals are either celebrating the life of someone through the lens of hope, polished to the clarity of eternity only Christ can provide, or there is a rawness to their despair, inflamed only by the hopelessness of an uncertain eternity. And it is oftentimes in this rawness the moment will allow us to share the gospel message, because in their despair they desire after hope so desperately. Author and social critic Oz Guinness is recorded as saying this, We are not primarily called to do something or go somewhere. We are called to someone. We are not called first to special work, but to God. The key to answering the call is to be devoted to no one and nothing above God himself. I do not believe that we should ever expect to be good. That is, we can do good things. We can learn to distinguish between good and evil, as it says in Hebrews 5.14. And we can overcome evil with good, as it says in Romans 12.21. But to be good would suggest that we would want to be in some way God. Instead, we should live in a way which honors God, striving after goodness and turning away from evil. Psalm 16.2 says, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. James chapter 1 verse 4 says this, And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word perfect in this verse means this. We have become complete. We have reached our end goal, and we are mature. In Greek, this word is pronounced teleos. And teleos does not imply complete knowledge, but a certain spiritual maturity in the faith. When Greek speaks of a perfect or teleos, it is in fact such if it perfectly carries out the purpose for which it was designed. The question we should ask is not, am I good enough, but rather, am I complete? Have I reached my goal, and am I mature? Do we labor and grow to complete our mental and moral character, and are we carrying out the purpose for which we were designed? Our design is to worship God, and our purpose is to tell others of their design as well. John MacArthur says this, Perfection is utterly impossible in man's own power. To those who wonder how Jesus can demand the impossible, he says in Matthew 19.26, With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. To believe man is essentially good is to reject God. Father God, we pray that we would search after goodness, that we would live a life that reflects the perfection of who you are. Not that we would be good, but that we would do good, and in doing good, we would show other people the goodness of God. We pray that you would be with us in the coming month. We pray that you would help 
to teach us and to remind us that we as Christians are called to do good. We pray this in your name. Amen. Next month I'll be talking about the Word. Is the Bible infallible, and are there parts of Scripture we can ignore? And can we force the Bible to work within our cultural expectations? I look forward to talking to you next month. Thank you for listening to Talia's Talk. Please come back next month and listen again. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Next month, Talia's Talk will open the Word and discuss the Word. Join the conversation we're having on Facebook and Twitter after every podcast. Our book, Six Good Questions, is available through Amazon and is great for small group study, personal reading, and outreach. As always, it would be good to hear from you. Send us an email at teliostalk at gmail.com. Keep us in your prayers as we prepare our podcast every month. We look forward to sharing with you again.